I want to tell you something, and that is operating a food company has been one of the most challenging endeavors of my life. From innovating products that we want to land at the intersection of taste and nutrition, to wrestling with supply chain issues and managing inventory, I have had more sleepless nights in the past three years than I have in the last 30, including the 12 when I was a firefighter. But no one tells you that food is hard. But I also want to say it's because of each of you that we continue to get in the trenches day after day after day. It's in our core values to keep at it, knowing that we are filling a giant void in the market with products that you can't find anywhere else. And this makes it easier for us to climb out of bed each day. I want to thank you for your patience. We are anxiously awaiting the return of our organic pancake and waffle mixes. And we're excited to announce that our Plant Strong milks will be available online later this week, followed soon thereafter by the return of our exciting new burger mixes. Our goal is to be your reliable and trustworthy partner for all things Plant Strong, allowing you to stock up on healthy meals that you can make and enjoy in minutes while still managing your busy lives. I appreciate each and every one of you and want you to know that the effort will be worth it once more brands start to care about the integrity of the nutrition that they're putting into their products. Thank you so much for your support and please stay tuned for exciting updates at planstrong.com. Most men that are out there don't like going to see the doctor. And I can't say that I blame you, but there's going to be some misses. And especially if you're eating the standard American diet. And I want all the men that are out there listening today to hear this, that your health is your most valuable asset bar none. It's not the new car. It's not the boat. It's not the dream home that you're working for. It is 100%. It is your health. And we want you to take responsibility for your health, right? You. I'm Rip Esselstyn, and welcome to the Plan Strong Podcast. The mission at Plan Strong is to further the advancement of all things within the plant-based movement. We advocate for the scientifically proven benefits of plant-based living and envision a world that universally understands, promotes, and prescribes plants as a solution to empowering your health, enhancing your performance, restoring the environment, and becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with. We welcome you wherever you are on your Plan Strong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our third Rips Rescue. It is Sunday, November 14th, and uh, I hope you've all gotten all the football you need so far. I know there's some good games going on right now. My son is watching the Seahawks playing the Packers, and uh, we'll see what happens there. But this is our third of 2021. Each year, we like to throw two or three of these free Rips Rescue events. Uh, I hope that you have joined us for our first two. If not, you can go back and watch those in YouTube. But our first one was back in February, 
and it was honoring Heart Health Month. And of course, if you're going to have Heart Health Month, you have to have my parents. So when we're talking heart disease, we had my father, Dr. Carl B. Esselstyn Jr. We had my mother, Ann Kryle Esselstyn. And we also had the upcoming cardiologist in the, the holistic lifestyle medicine uh, arena, Dr. Brian Aspill, who will also be joining us tonight. But we talked about all things that we can do to prevent reverse heart disease in that first Rips Rescue. Our second Rips Rescue event was a few months ago, and it was all about weight loss, how you can lose weight without losing your mind. And of course, we had a very special guest, Dr. Doug Lyle, that let people know that weight loss shouldn't be as hard as most people make it out to be once you're armed with all the proper information. And our third Rips Rescue tonight is all about men's health. It's a change of heart and it's vital intel that all men should know about. Our mission here at Plant Strong is to provide you with all the tools and the resources to make this lifestyle as simple, as drop-dead simple as absolutely possible and set you up for success where it counts most, which is with your health. As many of you know, I was a firefighter here in Austin, Texas for 12 years. And as a firefighter, we answered the call for help about 10 to 15 times every shift. And now I'm dedicated to helping people rescue themselves using the power of a plant-strong diet and by sharing the evidence-based research and information that is out there and dismantling the slew of myths and misinformation that is out there that plagues us all, that really is causing a lot of noise and making people unsure of what path to go down. And I want you to know that the best path, the straight and narrow path, the one that has the absolute preponderance of the scientific evidence-based research is a whole food plant-based diet. Don't go on another, another fool's errand because it's just not worth it. Figure out how to dial this lifestyle in. This is what it's all about. Now, as a thank you up front, I just want to let you all know as a thank you for joining us tonight, we're going to be giving away a free Plant Strong Holiday Rescue Bundle. How about that? As you go into Thanksgiving and Christmas, for everyone in attendance, and it's a collection of 11 mouthwatering, plantastic recipes, including several of my favorites. So stay tuned. We'll, we'll share that link with you guys soon. And keep in mind, if you can't stay for the whole event, no worries whatsoever. We're recording tonight, and um, you'll have a compl complimentary replay that you, that you can access after tonight. Now, as a firefighter, you guys know that we were fight fighting a lot of fires. But what people didn't know is that 90, 80 to 90% of our call volume, we were fighting chronic Western disease. We were fighting the chest pain, the difficulty breathing, the heart attacks, the strokes. We saw all this up close in person. We saw the 
pre-diabetes, the type 2 diabetes, the low blood sugar levels. We went on more lifting assistance calls than I care to remember. We heard about all the shots across the bow that people had, had had with some sort of major cancer. And of course, we heard about the cocktail of medications that people were taking on a daily basis. And the irony to me with all this is that firefighters, of all professions, firefighters are probably the most unhealthy. In fact, I would go as far as to say that most firefighters are unfit for duty. And that's because it is such a masculine, toxic food culture. It is like the standard American diet on steroids and then some. And I mean, every meal has to have a huge slab of flesh on it. Otherwise, it's not considered a male. And what's going on there is, as you can imagine, that huge slab of flesh is just basically decaying and eroding the health of these firefighters. And what is so crazy is that what I have found is that most firefighters, they come out of the fire academy, a six-month-long fire academy, and they are in the best shapes of their lives. But then year after year of being in the in operations at the station and being ensconced in this toxic food culture, what happens is they're gaining about five to 10 pounds a year. Their cells are starting to fill up with that intomyocellular lipids, basically fat in the cells. They're becoming pre-diabetic. Many are becoming type 2 diabetic. A study was done about five years ago by Fire Engineering Magazine, and it found that almost 82% of firefighters in the line of duty are either overweight or obese, 82%. And, and I'm telling you right now, it's the food, it's the food, it is the food. And you can't expect to eat this way for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for five, 10 years and not have some sort of repercussions. In addition to putting on the pounds, they're also packing in the plaque in their arteries. And this is one of the reasons why the number one cause of in the line of duty deaths for firefighters is heart attacks. And it is super, super sad. And the reality is they become a liability to not only themselves, but also to their crews. And that's one of the things that happened at Fire Station 2 back in 2003. And what turned the ship around was that we were as a group trying to save the life of one of my firefighting brothers. But the great irony is that most firefighters have the same ailments that most Americans do. They're overweight. They've got high blood pressure. They've got high cholesterol. They've had a brush across the bow with either cancer or some sort of uh, heart disease. And it's sad. And what's interesting is that we totally like righted the ship at fire station too. And this is, you know, going back to 2003, 2004. And I started writing my first book, The Engine 2 Diet in 2000 and really 2006, 2007 is when I was in the throes of writing the book. And when we would go to our annual physical exams, because every firefighter has to have an annual physical, the in-house firefighting physician 
would take a look at our numbers and go, you guys are doing something right at Fire Station 2 on the C-Shift. And I'd let them know, well, you know what? We're eating this plant-based diet because we're trying to save a fellow firefighting brother. And he became so interested with what I was doing that he asked to read the manuscript of my book. He also then did his own research and found that everything I was talking about was, was true. It all aligned up. He actually went on the the Engine 2 diet himself, lost 20 pounds in 28 days, brought down his cholesterol, his LDL. And the cool thing is that so when all these firefighters came through for their annual physical and they were overweight, hypertensive, high cholesterol, he would basically hand them a slip of paper that said, right, his prescription was do the Engine 2 diet, which was pretty darn cool. But his firefighters you know, we got to see a doctor every year. We had to see a doctor every year. Most men that are out there don't like going to see the doctor. And I can't say that I blame you, but there's going to be some misses. And especially if you're eating the standard American diet. And I want all the men that are out there listening today to hear this, that your health is your most valuable as asset bar none. It's not the new car, it's not the boat, it's not the dream home that you're working for. It is 100%. It is your health. And we want you to take responsibility for your health, right? You, you and you alone. And then that way, you know, you're not going to leave your family hanging, your kids hanging, your wife hanging after you have that stroke or God forbid, that heart attack that, that kills you. So most of us, men are conditioned to think that we're invincible and that we have time to make our health a priority. But the reality is there's no time like the present to get started and to make this thing happen. And whole food, plant-based is the ticket. Now, more and more men are coming to the realization that plant-based is where it's at, but there still is this myth, this, this misconception that eating plants is somehow going to emasculate me, that I am somehow going to lose my man card. And I want you to know that nothing could be further from the truth, that by eating this way, you will become as masculine as you ever have for a myriad of reasons that we're going to talk about today. And I think it's appropriate that right now I bring in one of our guests tonight, Dr. Aaron Spitz, no one better to talk about this He is a urologist. He is the former lead delegate to the American Urologist for the American Medical Association. He is currently the head of the American Urologist for telemedicine, which is a field that is just taking off. Aaron has the scene in the Game Changers documentary that is probably, it steals the show. It's the most memorable of the whole 90-minute flick. Aaron did a brilliant job. Just to kind of let you guys know, you may find him to be funnier than you ever imagined, and that's because he actually used to be also a stand-up comic. (laughs) No pressure, Aaron, whatsoever. But Aaron, for all the men that are out there that are thinking, you know, they're somehow going to lose their man card when they start eating plant-based, they got another something coming to them, correct? Yes. Um, the the stereotype of, you know, uh, 
you hit like a vegetarian, which was uh, <laughs> yeah. captured in the game changer so nicely. Uh, this idea that um, unless you're you're eating other animals' muscles, you won't have muscles um, uh, really doesn't pan out. The science doesn't support it. And what's actually interesting is one of the things we associated with manliness is testosterone and testosterone levels. And it turns out that vegans do not have lower levels of testosterone than omnivores. In fact, they actually have higher total levels of testosterone, but when you calculate their bioavailable testosterone, it's exactly the same. Yeah. So science has shown that you will not uh, shrink up and shrivel away, certainly not from the standpoint of your testicles right. and their production of your manly hormone testosterone, by going on a whole food plant based plant based diet. Well, I'd love to I'd love to get into testosterone a little bit later. First, I want to continue introducing you because you are the author of the Penis Book. Yes, you know, indeed. Which uh, tell me this why why the eggplant? It seems a little droopy. I mean, is that the best like you know vegetable that that yeah. is? You know, <laughs> what? The reason the reason you're asking me this question is because you're old. <laughs> and, and and I asked the same question when I got the proof of the cover back from my publisher. I said, yeah, an eggplant. Why not a banana or a carrot? And then I showed it to my 20 year old son who said, Dad, that's perfect. And that's because as I have on this pin on my lapel here, yeah. the eggplant is the emoji that people use to signify penis when they text each other. It's not actually to signify an additional item on a grocery list. So because the eggplant is the emoji for the penis and the artist of this cover was substantially younger than you or I, yeah. uh, that's how it occurred. And, and in retrospect, um, I've been so thrilled that, that they came up with that, but it is funny because one of my patients found a copy of this book in the public library of their community. And it was filed in the cookbook section. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, Probably a little bit of a mistake. Which is not, in, not all that inappropriate. No. There's a chapter on nutrition in it. But yeah. Uh, yeah. but yeah, so the eggplant is the emoji. Yeah. And you're also an expert in male sexual health and fertility, which I want to definitely touch upon today. But I'd love for you to start by letting our audience know, what exactly does a urologist do? I can actually, and maybe this is not... I'm 58 and I have never been to a urologist. So well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe I well, need to, but. It's, it's not so critical that every man see a urologist, but it is important that every man have a urological examination done by their doctor of their prostate and of their genitals. Uh, urologists are doctors who specialize in the reproductive system of men and in the urinary tract mm -hmm. of men and women, which includes the kidneys, the ureters, the bladder, the urethra of men and women. But in men specifically, the reproductive organs are going to be the prostate, which is also part of the urinary tract, but is principally a reproductive organ, the seminal vesicles, which are structures that create the fluid that makes up the majority of the volume of semen, and then the testicles and the vas deferens and their function, which includes sperm production as well as hormone production, testosterone. And 
So those are all the aspects. So a urologist might treat a man who has low testosterone, hmm. low sperm count, or a man who's having difficulty uh, urinating too frequently, or a woman who has a kidney stone, or a woman who has a cancer of her kidney, or a man with a prostate cancer. But a man of your age, Rip, ought to, and I, I imagine you probably have, uh, had uh, an examination of their prostate and a PSA blood test mm. to make sure that they're not harboring a prostate cancer because it is such a common cause of death in men and such a common cancer in men. And because it's a cancer that doesn't cause any symptoms until it's too far gone to cure. Mm. And so that's why we want to actively screen for it, actively look for it uh, on a regular basis. And if a primary care physician is performing a rectal exam, a finger exam of the prostate, and checking a PSA on his male patient, that's satisfactory. That patient doesn't have to have that done by a urologist unless there's an abnormal finding and then certainly come and see a urologist. So can you explain a little bit more about that screening, the PSA screening and, and the numbers that are associated with that and what we should be kind of looking out for there? Yes. Yeah, so PSA is a blood test for a particular molecule that's only made by the prostate gland. And the prostate gland is like a, a tunnel that surrounds the urethra between the bladder and the penis. And its function is to create fluids that are important in the semen to help activate the sperm and make the semen more or less viscous so that it can um, be more or less, uh, so it can be more efficient once inside the vagina to deliver the sperm. That's what the prostate's there for. But as men get older, in many men, the prostate starts to enlarge and that tunnel squeezes inward and makes the flow of urine slower. But it can also develop cancerous cells within it. And whether it's a benign normal cell or a cancer cell, it'll make this molecule called PSA, which stands for prostate-specific antigen. Mm. And cancer will produce it at 10 times the amount per cell as benign prostate tissue. So that's why we look for a rise in the PSA levels in the blood as a clue that there could be cancer in the prostate accounting for that higher level. And we determined that the normal level based on a large number of men studied is at about four if you're in say your 60s or, or, or early 70s. And if it's less than four, it's likely to be benign. It's likely to not be uh, uh, hidden cancer in your prostate accounting for that total level of PSA that's below four. But if you're 50, four may be too high of a cutoff and instead a lower cutoff like two and a half might be more appropriate. But the doctor or the urologist takes the PSA level into consideration with your age and also other factors that could account for a PSA being higher than four, being higher than that cutoff such as if a man has a very large prostate, which is not cancerous, it may result in that many more cells making higher levels of PSA that's benign and not cancerous. Mm. And some of what we do is say, well, what is the change of the PSA? If we think your PSA is okay this year and you come in next year and it's doubled and say it went from uh, two to four, well, it's still at that cutoff of perhaps being benign, but it shouldn't have doubled in a year. So we look at the PSA not only in terms of what is the actual level of it, but how much is it changing and, and how big of a change is that over time and how 
how high is the PSA compared to the actual size of the prostate? So a lot of things go into it. Now, PSA is not a perfect test. If it's high, it doesn't mean you have prostate cancer. It means you need to look more carefully. And typically that will be done with a biopsy of the prostate, which is a way of getting little needle samples of yeah. the tissue itself to see if there's cancer uh, under the microscope. And then if cancer is found, there'll be a discussion about what to do because some prostate cancers are so slow growing that we've learned that men can live with it without any treatment at all and be safe, but others are aggressive. And if you didn't catch them early enough, that man will succumb to prostate cancer and not live out his full productive life. Well, tell me this, what, what, so what is the purpose of the prostate? Cause I have a, one of my best friends about three, four years ago when he was 53, 54, actually had prostate cancer, had it removed. And, um, you know, I guess the surgery went really well. There's no side effects, but do we absolutely need that prostate or what's its function? <laughs> so the function of the prostate is for fertility. It provides enzymes yeah. into the semen that causes the semen to liquefy. So the sperm can move around more freely in, inside the lining, the walls of the vagina and get to their target which is the egg, which is in the uterus on the other side of the cervix. But it also causes the semen to coagulate. And it coagulates at first so that the semen will stick to the walls of the vagina and not run right out. And then after some time, it liquefies so that they can then continue on their journey to the egg. And without the fluids uh, from the prostate, the semen is not effective and uh, fertility is, uh, is not achievable naturally. And so that is the function of the prostate. However, it sits in a very key anatomic location, which is right around the urethra and the nerves that allow for erection run right alongside it. Yeah. And the one of the mechanisms that help men hold their urine and not leak urine, which is the bladder neck, is right next to it. And so these structures, the bladder neck and the nerves, are going to be impacted by surgery. And if a man is young and healthy and the surgeon is skillful, the prostate can be removed without much of an effect on yeah. his erections or on his ability to hold his urine. But that man will no longer be naturally fertile. Right. Um, not only that, not only is the prostate removed, but adjacent structures called the seminal vesicles, which produce most of the fluid of the semen, are also removed. And it's disconnected from the vas deferens, which, which dumped the sperm up into the urethra at that point. So all of the fluids that are associated with semen are no longer entering into the urethra after a prostate surgery removal. So a man will continue to enjoy sex, have the pleasure of orgasm, have erections, but no fluid will come out when he reaches a climax. Mm -hmm. Do you actually perform prostate surgery? I did uh, earlier in my career, but because I've shifted my emphasis more towards male fertility and sexual function treatments, I've passed those cases on to my partners who subspecialize in robotic laparoscopic prostate surgery. Mm -hmm. Would you say there's some pretty good peer-reviewed evidence that indicates that eating a whole food plant-based diet can help protect men from prostate cancer? Yes, there is. Uh, and that was one of the first things that I read that got me excited about whole food plant-based diet 
and led to my conversion to it and my recommending it to my patients. Early on, when I first started reading about it, one of the first things I read was a study done at UC San Francisco Medical Center, uh, regarded as one of the very best urology mm. uh, programs in the country. And um, their department, working in collaboration with Dean Ornish, who was on faculty there, uh, did a study of men who had been diagnosed with prostate cancer at an early stage because of the PSA. And they were randomized to two groups. One was business as usual, standard American diet, yeah. uh, standard American lifestyle. And the other was a whole food plant-based diet in conjunction with mindfulness uh, and uh, some nutritional supplementation. And they followed these men for a year. And usually when you have a finding of prostate cancer, you're either gonna be told, hey, this is pretty aggressive. You should get it treated now, or this one isn't so aggressive. It might just stay there and not grow very much and you might not need any treatment, but it might grow. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna watch you over the course of a year, we're gonna re-biopsy you, we're going to monitor your PSA, and if it shows us that it's growing, you need to then get surgery or, or, or radiation. And so what they observed between the two groups is that in the group that they put on the plant-based diet, they had uh, almost 30% less of those men went on to require surgery or radiation because none of them showed a growth mm. in the prostate cancer, but in the group that had just their regular diet and lifestyle, um, almost 30% of them progressed onto needing surgery. So there was this, there was this suppressive effect in these guys who already had the cancer. They had the cancer, but the plant-based diet appeared to be associated with it not growing as quickly over that year. And then other studies have shown that in men who have metastatic prostate cancer, it's already spread to other parts of their body, that the speed at which it is growing, that is to say the doubling time, how much time it takes for the amount of cancer to double in their body, yeah. was slowed way down when put on plant-based diet. Instead of doubling every 18 months, the calculations and projections, because they, they did projections of what would happen if we did this more and more and more years, was that the doubling time slowed down to closer to 60 months to five years. So from a year and a half to five years, wow. slowing down. Now, these results, remember, are not 100% for every single man studied, but this is how it averages it out. And I tell my patients that eating a whole food, plant-based diet uh, has the potential to decrease your chance of getting prostate cancer, or if you have prostate cancer, of it progressing if you're if it's a not aggressive one, if it's an aggressive one, I advise them to get it treated and eliminated because I am not purporting that a whole food plant-based diet cures your prostate cancer. But I do believe that the evidence shows it prevents you or lowers your chances of getting it or it helps slow it down once you have it and helps slow it down once you have a severe case of it. And the good news is, is that the whole food plant-based diet is not going to hurt you even if it doesn't help you. Mm -hmm. As, as men age, their prostate enlarges. Is that, how much of that is a function of what we eat and how much is a function of it's just genetic and this is just, this is the, 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 the straw you've been dealt? Well, 
I think that there is scientific evidence that indicates that the, the cancer risk of, of, of a man's prostate is related to what they eat uh, and is not just baked in genetically. Hmm. And I think there's also evidence that indicates that other non-cancerous problems with the prostate, such as enlarged prostate or prostatitis, could also be potentially due to dietary patterns. Mm. And the reason I say that is there, there are uh, different studies that show that men's prostate cancer rates, as well as rates of prostatitis or other problems with the prostate, are much lower in parts of the world where men consume very little animal products, typically due to less access to animal products, which are typically more expensive to uh, procure. Yeah. And so these tend to be populations in more rural uh, areas of China uh, or rural areas of Africa uh, or Japan. And when you track these men's subsequent generations who move from those locations to more urbanized areas of either the same country or immigrate to the United States and are eating a uh, diet that has much more animal products in it, you will see that their prostate cancer risks or their, or their son's prostate cancer risks uh, rise dramatically. And therefore, their prostate cancer was not coming out because of their genetics. It was come, these are the same gene, it's the same gene pool, but now they're in a different food environment. And there are other differences in the environment too, but when, when corrected for the different variables, food stands out as the thing that triggered the increase in prostate cancer in this long genetic line that didn't have a high prostate cancer rate up until that point. And so I think you can make the case that prostate cancer and prostate disease is not baked into your genes. Yeah. It's not just luck of the draw, that you can influence it to some degree with what you eat or what your what your son eats or what your grandson eats. Yeah. Let's 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 move over now to the blue elephant in the room, the uh, ED, and like what percent of your patients would you say come into you because they have some sort of ED going on, erectile dysfunction, and they're looking for an answer to rectify this situation? Yes, I have a high percentage of patients who are coming to me for this because I I'm a known specialist in this yeah. area. But nonetheless, I can tell you that erectile dysfunction afflicts a large number of men, and it tends to be uh, age-related. So at age 50, about 50% of men have some degree of erectile dysfunction. It may be mild for most of them, but for some it can be severe. And as you go up with each decade, 60, 60% of guys, 70, 70% of guys, 80, 80% of guys, and as you go up, the proportion of those cases that are severe increases. So the, there's a lot more guys in the, in the 80 age group whose erectile dysfunction is severe, not mild, and a lot more guys in the 50s age group whose erectile dysfunction is mild but not severe. But even in younger men, even in men in their 20s uh, and 30s, there will be a, a low but present incidence of erectile dysfunction. And in those cases, it tends to be more in the behavioral or psychological, but in men in the 50s and up or even late 40s, uh, although there may be a behavioral or psychological component to it, there is in most cases an underlying 
physical component to it, which is primarily a problem with blood flow to the penis mm. and the health of the blood vessels, akin to the kinds of things you've been talking about with regards to the health of the blood vessels of the heart. Right. And the same issue that is putting guys at risk for having heart attacks and strokes is also causing guys to have erectile dysfunction. But here's the thing. The blood vessels to the penis are only a millimeter in diameter, whereas the blood vessels to the heart are about five to six millimeters in diameter. The same process is occurring throughout all the blood vessels in the body. And if the blood vessels are getting diseased and getting thickened and narrowed and the passageway is getting squeezed out, it's going to happen to the penis before it happens to the heart. And the guy is going to notice a weak erection few years before he notices chest pain. Mm. So that's why we call it the canary in the coal mine. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. It's an early indicator. Now, there are many men who are under routine care of their physicians and are being monitored for cardiac disease on a routine basis before they ever get erectile dysfunction. And so when they get erectile dysfunction, it doesn't mean that suddenly they have uncontrolled heart disease. But as you know, there's lots of guys who never get in to see their doctor, particularly yeah. in our age group in the 50s. They, they haven't yet come in to see a doctor. And if they're experiencing erectile dysfunction and they've never seen a doctor, they actually could have pretty significant heart disease as mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. just waiting, just lurking around the corner. And so it's important to have a cardiological evaluation if you've never had one before if you also are having erectile dysfunction. When you were visiting Austin a couple of years ago, you and I went on a great hike with your wife, and I was really impressed on that hike, how well you also understood nitric oxide in those, the pathways. And yeah. I think that it would be helpful for all the men and the women who care about their men that are listening to hear about nitric oxide, not only from my father who always is harping on it, but from yourself, a urologist, and what you know about nitric oxide and what it can do for our uh, vascular health. Certainly. Well, you know, nitric oxide is sort of this miracle molecule. And the man who characterized it, or the scientific team, really, yeah. who characterized it, received a Nobel Award because of, of its importance. Um, nitric oxide is a molecule uh, which is uh, a nitrogen and an oxygen. And it exists very fleetingly as a gas. It, it, and it is a neurotransmitter. Um, and it is also a molecule that's released uh, by other kinds of cells as well, including the cells that line hmm. the uh, blood vessels. There are these cells that line all of our blood vessels called endothelium. Mm -hmm. and, um, and these cells are... Uh, important in uh, nourishing and supporting the blood vessel itself. The blood vessel uh, opens up and it constricts because of smooth muscle cells that are in the wall of the blood vessel. And the reason that those smooth muscle cells will relax to open up the blood vessel or constrict to narrow the blood vessel is in response to nitric oxide. And that nitric oxide is released by the endothelial cells next to them. And it's also released by nerve endings um, of nerves that are going to them. So in the penis, there are nerves that 
go to the two chambers of the shaft of the penis that fill up with blood. And those chambers are filled with a very delicate, spongy meshwork of endothelial and smooth muscle cells, mm. like a tiny, tiny micro sponge, if you can imagine that. And the nerve endings send a signal that not only releases nitric oxide, but also signals all of these cells, um, all of these smooth muscle and endothelial cells, and the endothelial cells will release nitric oxide. And then all of those little smooth muscle cells in there will relax. And what happens is that that spongy tissue inside the chambers of the shaft of the penis opens up to allow more blood to rush in and fill up the penis and make it erect. And at some point, that nitric oxide release gets shut off. Mm -hmm. And then the erection can subside. And so there's this natural process where nerve signals trigger the release of nitric oxide, which then causes the blood vessels to open up and allow for an erection. And then at some point, it shuts down. And nitric oxide is produced uh, by human beings in their cells inherently. But as men get older, past the age of 30, which is not very old, Mm. Um, their own inherent production of nitric oxide starts to drop off. And so getting nitric oxide from the outside world becomes increasingly important. And the best source of nitric oxide from food is from plants. Whole food, plant-based sources of nitric oxide are going to be your most obvious way to supplement nitric oxide. And the way in which we get nitric oxide from plants is actually uh, not all that straightforward because remember, nitric oxide is a gas. So we're not eating these plants because they're filled with nitric oxide. They're in fact not. Um, they're, in filled with, they're filled with nitrates and nitrites. Um, nitrates is NO3, nitrite is NO2, but what we want is to get some NO into the blood vessels of our circulation of our penis. And so there's this interesting cycle of absorption and secretion. And the, and the bottom line of it is that in order for you to get maximum nitric oxide into your blood vessels, not only do you need, need to eat the green leafy vegetables and the other plants, beets that are rich with these nitrates and nitrites, but what happens is some of that nitrogen and oxygen molecule combinations circles back and gets concentrated in your salivary glands. And so the next time you go to eat a source of nitric, of, of, of uh, nitric oxide, one of these vegetables, one of these plants, you want to chew it so that your saliva is released. And then with the release of, the, of that concentrated um, nitric, uh, nitrate and nitrite with this additional source of food that you're chewing and swallowing, then you get the maximum input from the nitrates and nitrites into your circulation where it then gets converted into nitric oxide. So it's great to have the green leafy smoothies and drink those down, but then follow it up with munching on a carrot or something that's gonna activate your salivary glands to get that maximum nitric oxide into your blood vessels where it can cause them to open up and allow more blood flow through. And even if you're not interested in uh, sexual function, you want to have good open blood vessels supplying blood to all of your organs, to the tips of your fingers and the tips of your toes, your eyeballs, your brain. And nitric oxide is a key molecule in promoting 
good, healthy circulation throughout the body, but in particular, yeah. uh, to the erection. To the well, I, I think I've read that we have roughly 65,000 miles of vessels coursing through our, our bodies. And I've also read that, that inch for inch, the penis has the greatest concentration of endothelial cells than any other part of the body. And so, yes. I mean, it would make so much sense to eat whole food, plant-based foods, lots of green leafies, and get that nitric oxide consumption up there, and then other things start up and as well. Yeah. And the other thing that boosts nitric oxide in our bodies is actually exercise. The, the pumping of the blood through the blood vessels, the hydraulic shearing forces actually stimulate the release of nitric oxide. Hmm. And so things that are common sense, things that your grandmother told you, eat your vegetables, go outside and exercise. They're actually really good for you. And the science is there to prove it. But fortunately, it was a remedy that we've always known that's available to anybody and that anybody can do at any time. But if you want scientific proof that it actually works, there is scientific proof. And it's it's very exciting to see that. What about, I, I, I think I, in talking to you in the past, you've mentioned that there's certain things like high blood pressure, diabetes, metabolic syndrome that also inhibit and, and maybe cause a certain degree of erectile dysfunction. Yes. You know, when you look at all these different disease states, high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, obesity, and you lump them together, we get what's called the metabolic syndrome. Mm. And the final common pathway of these different states or these states in combination on your blood vessels is fibrosis. What that means is those smooth muscles that were supposed to expand and contract, open and close the blood vessels, uh, and and their associated lining of endothelial cells gets replaced with collagen. And in some cases, even calci calcium deposits. Mm -hmm. And so you lose the stretchy elastic lining of the blood vessels because of disease. And that's high blood pressure, that's diabetes, obesity. And what's happening is there are various uh, molecules that increase in concentration these can be free radicals, oxidants, uh, things that cause oxidative stress to the cells. There can also be genetic and epigenetic triggers mm. that cause cell death called apoptosis, where these cells are, are dying. Um, and also molecules that stimulate the increase laying down of collagen, uh, thick and non-elastic material. And when you have fibrotic blood vessels, they don't open up. They don't stretch. Mm -hmm. And so you can't get as much blood into your penis during an erection or into your heart or into your brain mm -hmm. or into any of your organs. But obesity is associated with um, decreased vascular health and fibrosis and, and loss of circulation over time, as is high blood pressure, um, as is diabetes. Diabetes is, is perhaps the most dramatic of those three conditions in destroying your blood vessels. Mm. Uh, because not only does it destroy the blood vessels over time, it's also destroying the nerves over time. And so people with poorly controlled diabetes not only have poor circulation, but they have neuropathy or even loss of sensation. Yeah. Uh, and 
it's affecting nerves in your eyeballs. They go blind or they mm -hmm. lose their vision. Um, and they also lose the nerve function of the sympathetic nervous system. So, uh, and the parasympathetic nervous system. So they can't control their autonomic functions like their heart rate or their digestion. Uh, and, and so diabetes is a very, very severe uh, uh, culprit uh, if uncontrolled. But you put them all together and they often coexist all together in the metabolic syndrome. Mm. When we first started speaking, you mentioned testosterone. And I, I'd love to spend just a few minutes talking about testosterone because so many guys are concerned when they start eating plant-based, whole food plant-based, their testosterone is going to go go down, their, you know, their estrogen is going to go up, but, you know, it can cut both ways. And I'd love for you to talk about that. Sure. Well, a lot of guys who come in to see me ask me, what should I eat? How should I change my diet to increase my testosterone? Uh, because, you know, there are many supplements that are being sold to boost testosterone. So it seems that you ought to be able to eat something to make your testosterone go up. And perhaps intuitively, people think that because testosterone can help me have big muscles, if I eat muscles, if I eat steak, which is cow muscles uh, or muscles of animals, then I ought to get some testosterone out of that. And that ought to help me with my testosterone level. However, it's a misconception. There is no food actually that will increase your testosterone level. Hmm. Meat doesn't increase testosterone, not even organ meats. The liver doesn't do it. Um, not even testicles themselves, uh, eating, eating cow testicles called valley oysters, uh, you know, commonly, uh, does not boost your testosterone. Um, so the idea that if you don't eat something, your testosterone will go down is completely uh, illogical because there's nothing you are eating that's keeping it up. Right. The testosterone. <laughs> and... And it turns out that when they've actually studied uh, vegan men, their serum testosterone is actually a little higher than omnivores, just scientifically proving that point. Um, now, there are nutritional supplements that may raise testosterone levels in some men, but not in others. And I used to try them on my patients, but they were so inconsistent that they didn't allow me to adequately treat my patients. But tribulus is a supplement that in some men may boost testosterone levels. And chrysin is a supplement that may decrease the conversion of testosterone to estradiol and therefore raise testosterone uh, to some degree in some individuals. Hmm. Many of the over-the-counter testosterone-boosting supplements do not boost testosterone, however. But some are very effective at boosting testosterone, but for bad reasons. They're spiked with testosterone so that they work but it's not revealed and they're unregulated. And it's much worse than just that they're spiked because some guys may say, hey, that's fine. As long as my testosterone goes up, who cares? But the problem is that when you take testosterone orally, unless it's a very specific formula, which is only available by prescription and has only been recently available on the market and is, and is expensive and is not the kind that these supplements are gonna be spiked with, oral testosterone, causes liver inflammation and can potentially cause liver failure. So it's not a great idea to be taking oral supplements that are spiked with testosterone. In fact, you want to avoid it. Not only that, a lot of younger guys are looking to boost their testosterone. And if they are 
intaking testosterone unbeknownst to them in an over-the-counter supplement, mm. that oral testosterone, even if it's not hurting their liver, mm. like any testosterone, shuts off their sperm production. So when you go on testosterone supplementation, you may really require it. There are very good reasons why men should receive testosterone for men who need it. Uh, but one of the trade-offs is it does shut off sperm production. And as a fertility specialist, I encounter young men from time to time who are trying to start a family mm. who come in with no sperm in their semen and they're not juicing. They're not shooting up testosterone or on testosterone patches. They're just taking this over-the-counter testosterone booster. What's the harm in that? Wow. And it turns out it's completely shut off their sperm production and it can take many months to get it back and be quite a roadblock to a couple's you know, uh, yeah. journey to uh, parenthood. Wow. So uh, there's no food that boosts your testosterone. Therefore, not eating certain foods does not lower your testosterone. Therefore, eating plants does not lower your testosterone. In fact, the studies have been done to show that it actually raises it a little bit. Yeah. Now, you can uh, lower your testosterone by overeating. Okay. Yeah. So if you overeat, and you become obese, you can lower your testosterone because your testosterone gets converted from testosterone to estrogens in the excess fatty tissue. And if you have a lot of excess fatty tissue, you may be converting your testosterone away to estrogen more than normal, lowering the levels in your blood. And then that extra estrogen you're creating circles back to the pituitary, which is a gland in the brain right behind the eyeballs that is the master controller of your testosterone production. It releases hormones that cause your testicles to make testosterone. And that estrogen can come back in and inhibit that and decrease the signal that it's sending to your testicles and make your testosterone even lower. So that's a case where the wrong foods and too many of them can lower your testosterone. All right, that's fa that is so fascinating. So before we bring in Dr. Brian Aspel, I'd love to ask you one more question, and then we'll, we'll all have a lot of fun here in the sandbox. And that is, so literally, your scene in the Game Changers was absolutely so memorable. Everybody, you know, is constantly talking about it. And you used something called a Ridges scan, right, to basically... <laughs> measure the, the 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 size the girth the everything of these college athletes erections my yeah. question to you is do you have any aspirations for doing like more research studies uh along these lines yes we actually uh are underway with a research study that we plan on starting to enroll our first patients into uh fairly fairly soon this is actually under the uh, supervision of Dr. Robert Osfeld, who's a very well-known cardiologist who has an inpatient plant-based cardiology program at Montefiore Hospital yeah. in New York. And he has spearheaded a study to attempt to uh, validate or see really what is the data of uh, an experiment just like what we did in yeah. the Game Changers movie. And this will be enrolling about 70 men, uh, principally medical students, young, healthy men, and be assigning them to a plant-based meal for dinner or a more sort of carnivore-heavy meal for dinner. And then after that single meal, 
measuring what happens to their erections while they're asleep and unconscious where they can't control it and there's not a placebo effect that can occur. Um, and then the following day, these men will eat three meals that are either plant-based or animal-based, and then they'll get measured again to see what the effects are of, say, a whole nother day of this. And they'll be switched back and forth. So they then go to the opposite meal than the one they had initially, and then they get measured again. And then we can get a lot of data because the scene in the Game Changers, as exciting as it was, was an experiment with a small number of people and to really hang your hat on it, as it were, <laughs> yeah. uh, you'd want to have um, more robust data. And that's exactly what this study will do. Wow. It still is just mind boggling to me that that men's erections could be affected that dramatically just after one meal. And Well, I, I didn't think it was possible. And when I was asked to try to provide a demonstration of how a single meal might affect a man's sexual function, my initial reply was, you can't do it. Uh, sexual function is, a, is an older man's yeah. condition. It happens very gradually over years and years of eating choices, uh, and a single meal is not likely to uh, make any measurable difference. And uh, James Wilkes, who produced the film, uh, kept asking me, kept at it, kept <laughs> yeah. pestering me, yeah. kept saying, go away. <laughs> kept saying, well, what about this? What about this ridge scan I read about? What about that? And I said, no, it's, it's not going to pick it up. The, 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 if there is a difference, the signal would be too imperceptible for something like this, this ridge scan device to pick up. Um, and then finally, I gave in. I was like, all right, man, um, we'll try it out. I don't think it's going to work. We'll try it out. And we, and we did a, a pre-trial on, on a handful of athletes. And in yeah. fact, the results were showing some response. But there were some technical errors there with the device. One of the machines you know, didn't function properly, really low numbers. But I said, okay, look, you know what? Um, <laughs> if you want to spend a lot of money on, on this scene, We'll shoot a scene and we'll get we'll get these uh, young men in and we'll try it out. But I really don't think it's going to work. And, you know, worst case scenario, that's your budget. But, you know, yeah. I'm happy to try. And I was completely skeptical going in. I did not think it would work. And what you saw in that scene was basically how it unfolded. And when I got the data, when I got the results, which was um, earlier in the day than when I uh, shared it with the three young men. I was blown away. <laughs> I was like, I could not believe what I was seeing. And I contacted one of the very top guys in our field, and I emailed him the data. Yeah. And he he responded immediately. You know, congratulations, this is amazing. But we both uh, acknowledged in our conversation about this data that you know this is not a clinical trial. This is not a conclusive enough amount of data results that you can make a, a claim behind it. So that's why we're very excited that we now are going to be doing the actual science that needs to be done to make this kind of a claim. But but the experiment was was tremendously exciting, no yeah, doubt. Yeah. Well and what's the what was your what was the thing you said at the end? It was like this is very exciting for what? For men and Well, I, I said that this would, you know, this is this is going to be of some interest uh, for people with penises and people who like people with penises. That's right. That's yeah. right. Uh, so awesome. 
So with that and the game changers, uh, I'd love to bring in Dr. Brian Aspill. Brian, can you join us from the uh, the green room? There he is. Hey, Brian. How are you? Hi, Brian. Hey, doing great. Yeah, great. I love the uh, explanation of nitric oxide, how it worked. That was extremely well done. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, yeah. So, Brian, um, for the, for those of you that that don't know Brian, didn't meet him for our first rescue event back in February, you know, Brian, you made a very powerful pivot in your career as a cardiologist after seeing some really powerful results from some of your patients that you basically asked or you gave them the option of kind of going down this whole food plant-based path. And I think that the, the results were so powerful that it caused you to scratch your head for about a year or two until you decided to basically roll up your sleeves and dive into this more holistic lifestyle-related form of cardiology. And because what Aaron is talking about right now with erectile dysfunction and the prostate and everything around male sexuality and fertility, and what you're seeing, and what you're seeing as you know the number one killer of of men in this country, heart disease, I thought it would be very appropriate to have both of you here because these these two conditions, heart disease and ED, are so intertwined. So. With your patients, Brian, with heart disease, do you like ask them, are you having any kind of erectile dysfunction issues? Is this something that you see as well on a, on a kind of daily basis? Uh, yeah, we see it a lot. You know, I'm, I'm actually struck by the number of guys who bring it up um, without it being asked. You know, I, I'm more focused on, are you having symptoms related to your heart disease, right? You're are you having exertional chest pain? Are you having shortness of breath? Are you having palpitations and awareness of your heart skipping beats? That those sort of things feel like you're going to pass out, smothering when you lie flat at night. Yeah. But you, you'd be shocked at the number of men who say, uh, "Can I talk to you about one other thing that's affecting me?" And you know it's common. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm having problems at the ED. I, I it's, uh, it's, you know, they correlate quite well, as you, as you know. Yeah. Well, and and for anybody that's out there that's seen my father's presentation. He talks about how so many of his core patients basically also got their sexual prowess back, something mm -hmm. that they had lost for a long, long time. And I'm wondering, and I'll toss this out to either Aaron or Brian, you know, typically when you see somebody that's got erectile dysfunction and you prescribe to them a whole food plant-based diet, not so much the blue pill, is there a certain length of time when we can expect to, these erections to come back or is it just on an individual basis every time. You know, so, Aaron, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. You know, although there is, uh, and there was in the experiment in the Game Changers movie, a uh, single meal effect of, uh, of eating a plant-based diet, making erections stronger in these young, healthy men, the majority of men that we're seeing are going to be older and they're going to have some degree of chronic disease in their blood vessels, some degree of fibrosis uh, in their blood vessels that will not be completely reversed uh, or improved enough to allow for a good erection with one meal. Mm -hmm. um, it will take some time for that to change because in the game changers uh, scene, you had men with normal erections at night go to having even more 
normal erections at night, but they didn't go from abnormal to normal. When you're trying to take a man from abnormal to normal, yeah. it's going to take longer. How long? It could be on the order of months, but it also could be on the order of a couple years. It really depends on how far back they're starting, how much disease they need to reverse in their blood vessels to get there. And to be fair, I don't advise my patients that I can reverse their erectile dysfunction with diet alone. Uh, and I don't advise them that I know for certain that they will be completely reversed with diet alone if they just give it enough time. Perhaps some will, perhaps some won't. So I do offer them pharmacologic therapy with Viagra, Cialis, the generics, and they can use that as a bridge while they're changing their eating pattern. And then they can find that they don't require it as much or at all mm -hmm. once they've had mm -hmm. a long enough exposure to a whole food plant-based diet. But nonetheless, the good news for these men is that what they're doing to improve their erections is also going to improve their cardiovascular health. Uh, and not only may it help them uh, in bed, it'll help them everywhere else. And if they do not fully recover their sexual function with diet alone, these pills are very safe. There's very little risk to using them as needed or as, re or as desired. Um, and there's really uh, almost no heart risk to them unless these men are also on nitroglycerin, right. uh, which, which very few of them are. Or if they have very severe heart disease to where the exertion of sex itself is dangerous and, and that's love. And the exertion of sex has been measured and it's the equivalent of walking up two flights of stairs. Now I've been married for a while. It's probably the equivalent of walking up two stairs for me. But at any rate, the exertion is, is really not all that great. And so the risk of sex itself on the heart or the use of these medications on the heart fortunately is quite low, but the best is to be able to yeah. uh, not require the pills. And, and it's going to take some a variable amount of time, depending on how far back the guy is. And, and, and to also to be fair, there are some men with conditions that cannot be reversed by diet, yeah. nerve injury from pelvic surgeries, um, uh, neurological conditions uh, that are not reversed by diet. So not all cases of erectile dysfunction are um, going to get better with a whole food plant-based diet, but a whole lot are. Yeah. What, Brian, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I would say, yeah, it's interesting that it takes that long. I would have thought it would have been more, uh, you know, quicker reversal. For symptoms of coronary heart disease, typically exertional chest pain or angina or angina, um, that usually reverses with the whole food plant-based diet, low fat, no SOS, no added oil in the O. Um, we usually see symptoms of angina improve or alleviate significantly within a week. Hmm. So it's much, much more rapid than, than what Aaron's mentioning there with erectile dysfunction. So one, one of the things I'd love for Brian, you to talk about first, and then if you want to follow up, Aaron, is just Im important screenings that men should be getting either annually or biannually um, because men are typically so reluctant to go to the, see the doctor. Brian, love to start with you. Yeah, I think Aaron mentioned it earlier, you know, right at the beginning of his comments that the first key is the guys have to see a doctor. Yeah. You know, women are far better, I think. I haven't looked at the data, but 
I think they're far better at seeing doctors. You know, they're going to see OBGYNs as they're going through the reproductive years, men or not. Men, myself included, I'll be honest, mm-hmm. uh, waited, I was a doctor and I was married to a doctor, so I had a little bit of a pass. Um, you know, I waited till I was 50 uh, to get a doctor, and I'm 54 in a couple of weeks. Uh, I waited till I was 50 and needed a colonoscopy and needed to have some things checked. And I think it's a hard sell for guys to say, you know, listen, you got to have a guy who's going to check your stuff and mm-hmm. stick his finger in your butt. You know, that's, uh, you know, not, not everybody's rushing to the, to the doctor's <laughs> office for those interventions. Yeah. Uh, so that's a hard sell. And, um, but I, I, to, to answer your question, I think once you've, you're there for the general physical exam, prostate check, genital check, you need some blood work. I mean, from a, from a heart standpoint, you definitely need to have a chemistry panel check to look at your kidney function, your blood sugars included in that panel. You need a fasting lipid profile, a, a cholesterol check to look at your cholesterol numbers, and you need your blood pressure check, which of course would have been taken as part of your, your vital signs. So hypertension, high blood pressure, cholesterol, and diabetes, uh, you know, those are major, major risk factors for heart disease. And all of those need to be checked, you know, for, for all the guys and, and women. Yeah. Well, it's amazing to me how many how many people I'm talking to and they're like, oh my God, my uncle he didn't even know he was diabetic and he was walking around with a blood sugar level in the 300s. And it's like, really? Wow. That's like crazy. Aaron, any anything you want to add to that? Yes. You know, low testosterone is a real condition that affects a lot of men and it, and it tends to be age related. And so if a guy is complaining of difficulty with their erections, although it may be based on their blood vessels getting narrowed in disease, and that's the most common reason that they would experience erectile dysfunction, there could also be a component of low testosterone at play as well. Other symptoms of low testosterone include a uh, feeling of uh, just sort of being wiped out at the end of the day, less, less energy and stamina getting through the day, less actual physical strength in the gym, uh, gaining weight and losing muscle, uh, mental, mental fog, now, these are symptoms that are very common in a variety of conditions, physical and psychological, but they can be the result of low testosterone. And so when I see men, uh, particularly over 40, who have these kinds of complaints, I will screen their endocrine health, their, their hormone balance, their testosterone, and I'll check their testosterone as well as some associated pituitary hormones that are important in the stimulation and the balance of the testosterone. And in a surprising number of cases, I'll pick up low testosterone. And low testosterone, if left untreated, can have some significant health risks to the man aside from their sexual function. Mm -hmm. We know that testosterone is important for sexual desire, and it's important to maintain the health and condition of the blood vessels and the tissues of the penis so that they can respond properly physically as well as just having the desire. But untreated low testosterone can result in osteoporosis, a weakening of the bones mm-hmm. in a man's skeleton and set him up for pathologic fractures later, collapsed spinal column, uh, hip fracture, femur fracture from falling down when he shouldn't have broken it from such a minor stress. Mm. Uh, also, uh, diminution in their muscle mass over time, making them weaker and more prone to injury from physical activity, as well as a diminution in their mental processing and sharpness um, losing their competitive edge in the workplace, not mm. just physically, but mentally as well. Yeah. Uh, and amazingly, um, 
a shorter lifespan, <laughs> the ultimate measurement. Yeah. So screening for testosterone, I think, is important for men who complain of symptoms that could be due to low testosterone, but it is not recommended as a routine screen for all men at a certain age. I got to tell you, I don't know if I've ever heard that word before, diminution, but I like it a lot. <laughs> uh, Brian, let me... Uh, and then, and then we got lots of questions from the audience that are coming in. And then I'd love to start taking some audience question, uh, audience questions. But Brian, what, what if any are some early warning signs that a cardiac event might be imminent? And any like any red flags that you recommend that men that are listening, you know, heed. You know, it's an interesting question. Uh, yes, there are some warning signs. Usually with activity, I think one of the most important questions that I ask a patient is how active are you? Open-ended question, and it tells me so much about so many things. Hmm. If you are experiencing exertional chest discomfort that is new, tightness, constriction, um, pressure, heaviness, discomfort is described in so many ways. If with activity you're experiencing those symptoms, or an unusual shortness of breath, or feel lightheaded or dizzy, it's it's a warning sign for sure. And so many patients that I've talked to have blown that off and said, you know, it's just a bad, it's just, I don't know mm-hmm. what happened to me in the last couple of weeks. I just haven't been sleeping well, maybe. Yeah. I just don't have it at the gym. Um, something's different, but they don't connect it, that it, this might be my heart. So we're looking for changes. If you are active, and you've had a change in exertional chest discomfort or shortness of breath, major, major sign, exertional fatigue. You know, if you're used to walking two miles every morning with the dog and at the one mile mark, you just don't have any more gas in the tank. Mm. And that's that, you know, everybody has a bad day. But if you've had a, a, a number of days like that, that's a problem. And you need to report that. The problem, there's two problems. The first problem is that if you're not active, you may have no symptoms. And so if somebody's completely sedentary, it is incredibly difficult to know mm-hmm. whether or not there are any symptoms. And the other major problem is that the most common presenting symptom of symptomatic coronary artery disease is sudden death, is a yeah. heart attack. So you can have no symptoms. Yeah. And then you have a, a plaque that cracks open, mm-hmm. a blood clot forms on top of the plaque, complete obstruction of the blood flow going through that artery. And the muscle downstream goes into an electrical spasm. The heart's not beating anymore. It's just doing this. Yeah. And, and down you go. So that, that's a major, major problem with heart disease. I mean, at least with erectile dysfunction, people don't suddenly just, you know, it's, this, is, this has been coming for a while. And heart disease is not the case. So you mentioned that, that kind of that juvenile plaque that cracks open and then causes the obstruction of the blood flow down to the heart. When are we going to have some sort of a newfangled non-invasive test where people yeah. can basically get tested to not only see what kind of blockage they have, but to see how many of these pimples we have lining, you know, our, our arteries to give us a better gauge of our, you know, of our risk? Ter- terrific question. So coronary angiography, heart catheterization, squirting the dye in there and looking yeah. at the arteries, it really doesn't tell it. So we're looking at things now, uh, CAT scans of the heart arteries or CT scans, computed tomography, CAT scans of the heart arteries to look at uh, plaque, what we call vulnerable plaques. Are, th- are there ways that we can do a ha- CAT scan of the arteries and zoom in on the areas where we see some cholesterol buildup 
and determine whether or not that that plaque, that area of cholesterol buildup with a cap walling it off from the bloodstream, whether or not that plaque is a what we call a vulnerable plaque ready to rupture yeah. or not. And I think a super fun study, and, and maybe we should talk to Robert Osfeld and, and, uh, and do this together, would be to look at that, identify those vulnerable plaques, and then put pa- randomized patients to a plant-based diet, repeat the study at some point and see if those plaques, if the composition of those plaques has changed such that they are no longer vulnerable. Mm. That's a cool study. I've not seen that study and I probably shouldn't have said anything. So somebody's going to take that study. <laughs> uh, but that's, uh, that's kind of where we're getting to now is the, the, the sensitivity of the CAT scans to be able to look at that sort of thing. And that's, uh, it's really cutting edge. All right, good. So let's jump into some questions here. I think this first one is probably for uh, Aaron, and that is, does more or less sex affect your risk for prostate cancer? Yeah, so the amount of sex and risk of prostate cancer is a pretty controversial study uh, question. And there was a more recent study that indicated that men who ejaculated more frequently while they were younger uh, lower had a lower risk of prostate cancer later but if a guy was already at the age of prostate cancer risks you know 50s 60s and he started ejaculating more frequently it was not likely to improve his uh his protection against prostate cancer so uh i think it's a case of you know enjoy yourself um but don't get too uh bogged down in that i mean if you're a young healthy guy and you're and you're ejaculating a lot, that's great. That's, it may be protective. The science is not you know, all that compelling. But if you are in a particular circumstances of your life where you're not ejaculating a lot, it's not a, a very significant increased risk if that, that study is even um, you know, able to be reproduced. The, the risk differential is, is, is very little either way. And so I would just say, you know, don't stress, enjoy yourself, uh, but uh, but don't overthink uh, your sex. Okay, okay. Uh, I think this is probably Brian. Brian, I have both strokes and heart disease on both uh, both my parents and my parents my parents' parents. Am I destined to have heart disease too? No. So the short answer is no. You know, this is called primary prevention. Secondary prevention is preventing the second event if you've already had an event, a stent or bypass or heart attack, and that's kind of cookbooky. But primary prevention, preventing that first event is very tricky. So I would, with primary prevention, I would use something called a risk calculator, and there's a couple of them out there. Mm -hmm. One is the MESA, M-E-S-A, Multi-Ethnic Study of Atherosclerosis. The MESA risk calculator is a good one. The other one is the ASCVD atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, ASCVD risk calculator. They're both excellent. You can find these online yourself. Just Google those, put the data in there. You'll enter things like your family history, your blood pressure. You need to know your blood pressure. You need to know your cholesterol. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you need to know whether or not you're diabetic. It asks you questions about whether or not you've ever been a smoker, it incorporates family history, and it will give you a number, which is your 10-year risk. With the ASCVD risk calculator, it's your 10-year risk of heart attack or stroke. With the MESA risk calculator, it's your 10-year risk of a heart attack. And then depending on that number, um, traditionally, of course, it's been used to determine whether or not someone is eligible for a statin or for lipid-lowering therapy uh, or any other, you know, blood pressure-lowering therapy, et cetera. 
um, for, uh, for us, you know, it's an opportunity to have that conversation with the patient and say, look, you're at risk. Uh, there are a number of ways that you can reduce your risk, including uh, changing your lifestyle and your diet. Uh, let's talk about that and, and see what you're interested in doing. Okay, nice. Aaron, is there a PET scan or some procedure that will help someone with ED? So patients often request uh, some sort of scan to see why they have erectile dysfunction. And the scan that is used to determine the underlying cause of erectile dysfunction is called a duplex ultrasound of the penis. Uh, it's not an MRI or a CAT scan or a PET scan. Uh, it's an ultrasound that looks at the blood flow and can observe the arteries opening and closing and can measure the uh, amount of flow in the penis. And what this study can determine is if a man's erectile dysfunction is due to a problem with the blood not being trapped in the penis properly. When you get an erection, you get a bunch of blood flowing into the penis much more then it's flowing out and it swells up all that space uh, with that little micro spongy tissue. They all swell up, filled with blood. And as it swells, it, it compresses the veins that are along the lining of these chambers that drain the blood back out and it compresses them so much it pinches them off, kind of like pinching off a garden hose. Mm -hmm. And so for some amount of time, the blood that's flown into the, that's, has flowed into the penis is now trapped in there. And when the erection is over after climax, there's a signal of adrenaline that's released and it causes the blood vessels to constrict and to squeeze the blood back out of them. And then that unpinches the veins and the blood can flow back out. And some men have a problem where those veins just never fully pinch off. Mm -hmm. And so the blood is continuously flowing in and then draining back out. That's called venous leakage. And that is a cause for erectile dysfunction that we can diagnose with the duplex ultrasound that can show us the blood flowing in and the blood leaking back out. And for those men, the leakage may be so much of a problem that hmm. medicines don't help, injections don't help, but a penile implant can be the cure and give them very good, satisfactory uh, sexual um, experience. And that's mainly where we use uh, an imaging study. For, but for the vast majority of men, um, we don't need any imaging studies. And imaging studies like this doesn't change our treatment recommendation only really where it comes into play in a meaningful way is when a man has exhausted the non-invasive options and nothing's working. And then this allows us to say, hey, look, you know what? This is a problem that requires a surgery, a, a penile implant. The other role for this kind of imaging is for clinical trials to establish whether or not a medication works. You know, how well does Viagra work? How well does Cialis work? Well, in the clinical trials, before it was FDA approved, they used duplex ultrasound to evaluate it. And they also used the Ridges scan to uh. see what was happening in men uh, when they were asleep because you didn't want to enroll men into these trials who actually just had a psychological cause for their erectile dysfunction. Otherwise, you really wouldn't know how well these pills are working because it could be a placebo effect. And the Ridges scan study lets us know if a man has a psychological or a physical, because if a guy's getting erections at night when he's unconscious, he doesn't have a physical problem. But if he's not getting erections at night when he's unconscious, he yeah. has a physical problem and would be a good candidate for treatment for a physical cause. Gotcha. Thank you. Um, 
So this, here's a two-part question for you, Brian, and I think they're, they're very related. The first is, how can I get my current cardiologist to support me in a whole food, plant-based you know, lifestyle? And then the second is, how do I find a cardiologist that will support me in a whole food, plant-based diet? So the first question, um, you know, you just have to have the conversation with them. You have to be well-read. You have to know the data yourself. You have to read, you know, Essie's book, your dad's book, Prevent Reverse Heart Disease. You might want to read some of Ornish's books as well, uh, maybe even Colin Campbell's books. I mean, just be really well-read and know the data and, and be armed and, and go in to have that conversation with the doctor and say, this is what I've been reading. I'm impressed with the wealth of data and peer-reviewed journals uh, that you may have also read. This is the direction I'd like to take. Will you support me in that? And and you may be, you know, you may get some pushback from someone who's going to be probably, frankly, maybe a little bit defensive at their lack of education about this stuff. Um, you might even challenge that doctor and say, listen, I, I read this book. Can I leave it with you to read it? And would you read it? And then can we have a conversation about whether or not you'll support me in this? That's a nice way to train the trainers. Yeah. Uh, um, it's hard to find doctors that will do this. You know, I'm a little disappointed, frankly. I, I get asked this question a lot. Uh, there is a there are a couple of websites. There's the American College of Lifestyle Medicine website, lifestylemedicine.org. Uh, and you used to be able to type in you know, find a doc, put in your, uh, your zip code or your address and find a lifestyle medicine board certified doctor. And it would be by specialty and you could find a cardiologist or primary care doc. They took that down, uh, to fix it or to revise it. And I just looked the other day, it's been down for months. So I have to ask them, hmm. you know, we really need this to be back up. Uh, there's another website called plant-based docs. I think it's.com. Yeah. Plant-based docs. And, um, and you can find some doctors there, and there's some that are listed. But uh, there's, there's frankly not a great one great database to find this sort of help. And that's another, it's a need. Yeah, that sure is a need. And uh, yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Uh, no, I, no, I, I, absolutely. <clears throat> Let's see here. Um, gosh, there's... We got a lot of questions, but uh, we got we got about five minutes. So, so Aaron, what about de- decreasing testosterone after forty? Is that a concern? What are the best ways to increase testosterone naturally with a plant based diet? I feel like we kind of already talked about that, but anything you want to add? Yeah. So, uh, the decline in testosterone after forty is pretty common, and if a man has uh, abnormally low testosterone, uh, he would potentially benefit from being brought up to normal. If a man is obese, he may be able to bring up his testosterone with weight loss, and a whole food plant-based diet is an excellent way to lose weight and has been shown to result in a higher level of testosterone anyway, although you know the differences are slight, but it but certainly doesn't lower one's testosterone. Mm-hmm. But if a man is not obese and his testosterone is low, there's really not a way to, to eat your way out of it because um, there's no food that raises your testosterone. And at the end of the day, you may require and benefit from testosterone replacement therapy, which is testosterone provided in the form of an injection, a topical ointment or patch, uh, or even oral and nasal formulations that are more recently available on the market. Mm -hmm. Here's a gentleman that just has, he's recovering from a radical prostatectomy for prostate cancer. And the surgeon is telling him that it could take up to two years before 
before erections are likely. He was fully functional before the surgery and is wondering what he can do aside from a whole food plant-based diet to kind of accelerate this process. Yeah. So nerves take up to a couple of years to grow back. That's why you're yeah. being counseled that it can take up to two years because of how long it takes nerves to repair. In the meantime, you want to keep those blood vessels that are waiting for the nerve signal to spring back into action. You want to keep those blood vessels as healthy and as supple as possible. So the diet is foundational. It's important because when the nerves do come back, and they may or may not fully come back, mm-hmm. but but to the extent that they do come back, you want the thing that they're stimulating to be able to respond as well as possible, keeping it healthy with that diet. There are some other maneuvers that, that we recommend to men after prostate cancer surgery to help improve the uh, quality of the blood vessels there uh, and, and make them um, you know, as healthy as possible for when the nerves do come online. And these include taking uh, a daily dose of a pill like Viagra or Cialis, uh, particularly before bedtime, because when you're asleep, your body is trying to stimulate erections. That's why we did that Rigiscan study in the Game Changers. And if you can give medications such as these, which will increase the amount of nitric oxide that is available in the tissues when the signal is sent, that may allow some increased blood flow, nourishing blood flow hmm. to those tissues while you're asleep and using them during the daytime to give you an erection to enable you to have sexual satisfaction uh, as well as increased blood flow to the penis. And if the pills are not effective, you can use a, uh, a man can use a vacuum erection device uh, to draw blood into the penis and it will pull some blood through the arterial system up into the penis, oxygenated blood that he wouldn't otherwise be getting Uh, And that can be done a few times a day for a few minutes a day. Or a man can use an injection into the penis that's much more powerful than the pills and can give an erection to most men after prostate cancer surgery who aren't able yet to get erections from the pills or naturally. And that brings blood flow into the penis, you know, during the episode of of sex. And that can be used a few times a week therapeutically and, and for enjoyment of sexual function just as the vacuum erection device could be used daily or a few times a week for therapy or for enjoyment of sexual function. And the pills can be used as a, as a daily regimen, regimen to try to harness whatever effects are happening when the man is asleep and the body is trying to stimulate erections. And all these can serve as a bridge or as ongoing continued therapy uh, to allow men after prostate surgery to continue to enjoy sex and to try to restore and improve their sexual function after, um, after there is this, this either temporary or permanent nerve injury from the removal of the prostate because those nerves are right against the prostate and you can't help but have to manipulate them to some degree when you're removing the prostate. Thank you. Uh, Brian, uh, Jim here wants to know, Dr. Aspel, what's the most important thing that I can start doing today? to turn around my heart disease and ensure that I am going to be my most best vibrant self. Eat more plants. <laughs> Eat more plants. Three I mean, words. It's, yeah. It's a real answer. You know, you know, you it's lifestyle works, exercise, stress management, getting better sleep, better social connections, stopping smoking. If you smoke, I'd put stopping smoking right up there with eat more plants. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
but those are the those are the things that give you the greatest bang for your buck most immediately. Um, smoking cessation and eating your your veggies, especially the leafy greens, and 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 if you're really having symptoms, add some vinegar to those greens because mm. the vinegar, as Aaron mentioned, nitric oxide vinegar uh, upregulates something called nitric oxide synthase, which allows that nitric it, it plays a role in the nitric oxide production cascade. So eat the greens, sources of nitrates and nitrites, and then add the vinegar to, to upregulate that enzyme, that synthase to allow that nitric oxide to be expressed. So that's it. Well, that sounds like eat a salad. (laughs) Eat a salad, put down the cigarettes. (laughs) You know, for those of you that don't know, Dr. Brian Aspel is our medical director at our uh, six-day medical immersion events. We just had a blast in Sedona a couple of weeks ago. We have another one slated for early March of 2022. So check it out and you get to hang hang with Dr. Aspel and all of us. Um, guys, our time is wrapped up and I want to yeah. appreciate you guys taking an hour and a half out of your Sunday. This has been great. I think that all the men listening tonight uh, are probably hopefully convinced that they can eat this way, eat a lot of plants and still hang on to their man card. Uh, and if anything, enhance their manhood. Uh, for those of you that are interested in learning more about Dr. Spitz, you can go to his website. We will be posting that. Go to his Instagram account at Dr. Aaron Spitz. You can pick up a copy of the penis book. I'm telling you right now, it is great a great read. I've read it several times. <laughs> and if you want, I had Aaron uh, on my first season of the podcast, and it was epic. So go back and listen to the Plant Strong podcast in season one. I think it was the fifth episode. Aaron, you were you were spectacular. If you want more on Dr. Brian Aspel, visit Ruckus Health. What's the what's the, what's the URL for you guys, uh, Brian? RuckusHealth.co, C-O, Okay, O-M. thank you. RuckusHealth.co. And uh, if anybody's also interested in booking a, a one-on-one consultation with Dr. Aspel, you can certainly do that. Before I let you guys go, I just want to let you know some goodies here. Remember, we got the free holiday recipe bundle, 11 recipes to make your holiday meals plan strong and delicious. Uh, that's going to be posted in the community. Simply visit community.planstrong.com. It's free, and we got about 25,000 members there. Know that baking season is upon us, and we have just launched our all-new unsalted broths and ready-to-eat chilies and stews, and they're in our planstrongfoods.com store to find all kinds of convenient meal solutions, including our pizza crust kits and our dessert-inspired guilt-free granola and our namesake cereal, the Rips Big Bowl. Remember, Black Friday promotion starts soon. Our biggest sale of the year on our Meal Planner uh, 2022 retreats and some special promos on Plant Strong Foods. So be sure you subscribe to our email list so you'll be the first to know. With that, uh, man, you guys, I don't know of two better looking male specimens, you know, to really (laughs) epitomize a whole food plant-based diet and what it can do for you. Aaron, it's great to see you again after a couple yeah. of year hi- couple of year hiatus. Yeah, looking forward to another hike with you uh, out in the uh, backwaters of Austin. <laughs> hey, 
you just went on a 10 miler yesterday in, in LA and I'd love to kind of see you in LA as well if that works. That'd be great. Yeah. And then and then Brian, it was great to see you three weeks ago in Sedona and great to see you again tonight. Look forward to to hanging out a lot more. You too. All right, you guys. Let's eat your veggies. Up, eat your yeah. veggies. Remember, peace. Engine two. Keep it plant strong. Yeah. The Plant Strong podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.